A very warm welcome to all our listeners. You are listening to Professor David Block, and our broadcast this afternoon is entitled Looking Up with David Block. It is wonderful. On this pale blue dot, terra firma, the earth on which you and I live, move, and have our being, to think that each one of you as listeners are unique, are irreplaceable. Each one of you as you wake up in the morning have unique strategies, unique ideas, unique dreams, unique visions. And today I would invite your participation at the following numbers and with the following information. To reach me, David Block, on studio, our studio number is 0861-555-189. And I am so pleased that we've had listeners from afar fielders, Germany, Sweden, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and indeed the listenership via global streaming is global. On Terra Firma. If you wish to reach us in studio on Twitter, we can be reached at the Twitter handle at cliffcentral.com. The WeChat official account is cliffcentral. Likewise, on Facebook, why not type in cliffcentral? Or even on Instagram, uh, a feature which uh, my beloved twins, age 16, simply adore. Uh, on Instagram, you can reach us at Cliff Central. This is Professor David Block, and I have in studio today a very uh, unique guest, a young man with a unique set of visions and extraordinary talents. And uh, I'd like to introduce him to you and then start asking him some specific questions related to the introduction I gave to dreams, to visions, to strategy, to life. But first of all, in introducing my special guest today, Adam Earl, uh, I am very privileged to say that I had the um, honor of uh, lecturing to Adam uh, quite a few years ago now, Adam, but it was uh, quite extraordinary for me to actually uh, meet up with you um, and to watch you grow in your career and especially with regard to strategy. Now, first of all, I remember my wife Liz telling me that uh, you started playing chess at a very early young age. Can you elaborate on that? What attracted you specifically to chess? Why did you enjoy it? You were a chess guru, um, absolutely so, in the newspapers at an extraordinary young age. Could you just lead us through those early days? Again, welcome to the studio. Well, good afternoon to all the listeners. And Prof, thank you for that glowing introduction. I'm not sure it's fully deserved. Um, chess was always a part of my life. So in thinking back, it's interesting to be that introspective and retrospective when i say i was young when i started i must yes. have been eight nine years old mm-hmm. um so certainly before i could make direct personal choices about it i started Amazing. i started playing because 
I played with my dad and my brother, and mm-hmm. it was fun to be bonding in that space. Yes. I think what kept me playing was the fact that winning feels good. <laughs> Wonderful. So, That's extraordinary. Indeed. So I mean that only slightly tongue-in-cheek, but um, to be very in control of... Of, of a game in that situation is a great feeling and something that I personally really enjoy, Prof. Yes. So you started playing at a very early age, uh, eight or nine, and how did you feel, how did you start feeling when you lost a game? Um, did you feel bad? Did you, you know, I try and teach people around the world, Adam, that failure is not a person. Failure is simply an event. How did you sort of personalize losses in your life and then wins in your life? Absolutely, Prof. The idea of failure as a stepping stone to success is one that you have to embrace quite early um, if you don't want to shatter inside. Yes. So there's um, a lot of humor that uh, we get from thinking back. When you lose at nine, ten years old mm. after having sat in front of an opponent for two and a half, three straight hours, mm-hmm. not a word having been said, it can quite take its toll on you mentally and emotionally. So you'll often see kids of nine years old having lost a game at a mm. tournament running around crying mm. um, because the loss is mm, so quite personal big. and quite deep. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and in terms of how I've, how that's really helped to contextualize loss mm-hmm. and more importantly failure in my life, mm-hmm. um, you, for me it really is a question of scale. While you can lose at a single game and it can seem the all, the everything, mm. you very, very quickly, perhaps five minutes later, realize that there is another game mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there is Good. a future and there is success to be mm-hmm. had there. And even beyond that tournament, there's another tournament to come. Mm-hmm. And there are goals at various scales, and it's important to contextualize your failures mm. um, in, that, in that kind of setting. Mm. I suppose that if I were to extrapolate two thoughts, which would be of inestimable value, inestimable value, excuse me, to our listeners today, uh, it would be the following, is that You've made two comments, Adam, which uh, resonate with, deeply resonate within my uh, neurophysiological processes, and that is uh, winning feels good. I think that's an extraordinary statement. You know, you can see when you watch the Olympic torch being carried onto the Olympic stage, at the Olympic stadia. You see the euphoria, the light is lit, the games are to begin, there's action, there's strategy, there's planning, there's purpose. But then when you look at the face, for example, of a sprinter or an athlete or one of the swimmers, uh, and they win, whether it be gold or whether it be silver. Somehow, Adam, uh, I would agree with you. Winning feels good. And what's very important to tag onto that is that no money is necessarily involved. I mean, in you playing chess, essentially at the age of nine, one might get a small monetary prize for winning, but, uh, it's not related to money. So would you like to elaborate on your, on the following thought? which I'm simply throwing out at you, 
perhaps unfairly so since you're not prepared for this, but how would you sort of juxtapose on the left hand and on the right hand money, which is, you know, the corporate dream, as it were. We must make bigger profits. And then people coming to me who are exceedingly wealthy and they're saying, but I'm so unhappy. How do you, uh, how do you link juxtapose uh, money on the one hand uh, and happiness on the other? An incredibly deep question, Prophet, but I've gotten used to them from you. So that's good. I'm well prepared. Um, I will say this, that very infrequently have I encountered a person whose truest goal is just money. Mm-hmm. It's often tagged onto things like fame, like stability, mm-hmm. um, like the ability to attain those Dreams that you thought were unattainable. Yes. Be it fame, be it travel. Yes. Um, and money really is ultimately just the currency in which we spend those dreams. And Wonderful. unfortunately, that isn't the right way to think about it. Mm-hmm. I will say, talking about those minusculely small monetary prizes, that <laughs> I don't think I ever really played for the money. Good. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Good. To bring back your analogy of the Olympic torch and the mm. flame and the exuberance on the face of a winner, mm. I think it's hard to argue that in that moment when they look up to the heavens, they're not thinking about their sacrifice but thinking about their sponsors. I think it's hard to argue that they're not thinking about the determination that brought them there but about the one loss they had three years ago. So I would say that happiness in terms of attaining one's dreams is quite removed from money in the abstraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is an unfortunate consequence of the 21st century, perhaps, an unfortunate consequence of the vil- visibility of fame in the media mm. um, that people mm. chase the money. Um, I think that, Adam, one sees this so much, for example, in any, Wood Holly- in any Hollywood scenario is that um, – you know, there's so much money flowing around and, you know, the actors or actresses are, you know, going for their cruise on their personal yacht with a helicopter to, you know, to land and and thus forth. And I think that so much emphasis somehow in life is spent on that very fleeting moment of fame, whereas you are touching on something far deeper than that, than fame, and that is you actually touching on the concept of uh, winning. I like that very much. In other words, to overcome within one's own psyche, within one's own being, the ability to win. Uh, you know, one can win in making a cup of tea. You used to win in writing some essays for me. Um, winning is very important, and m- winning is, as you've said, not related to money at all. But the point is this. I have occasion to deal with thousands of people around the world as I lecture, and there are not too many winners in the sense that uh, perhaps people just have a low sense of self-esteem. Now, at the age of eight or nine, when you were this chess guru, I understand that there is another game. But did you internalize it yourself? Did you have to coach yourself and say, well, look, I've won uh, or I've lost a game? Or did you have someone like your father come up to you and say, well, now there is another game? How did the person, the young child, the chess guru, Adam Earl, actually cope with losing uh, and internalizing the loss? 
which everybody does, but at the age of eight or nine. Absolutely, Prof. I think you've touched on a very important issue that um, there are two parts to this. The first is you having to do it personally, and the other is the support provided to you yes. by parents, by peers, mm-hmm. um, by competitors even. Mm-hmm. I would say that I was fortunate to have had a lot of support, um, especially from my parents who mm-hmm. were very good at giving me the space I needed when I needed it, mm-hmm. um, and also to have had supported pe- supportive people around. What I will say is that no level of their support could have helped me to deal with my internalizing. Very good. So mm-hmm. how did Let's I Let's repeat it? that. No mm-hmm. amount of external support can ever osmose <laughs> into one's brain to help you when it is something you do yourself. Absolutely, Prof. And I think that truly is epitomized almost by the game of chess where a loss on a rugby field allows you to, at least to some degree, attribute that loss to somebody else, to them as Right, a team effort. Absolutely, a team Mm -hmm. effort, um, both in victory and in loss, whereas Mm -hmm. the exuberance of a win on the chessboard, you realize was no achievement um, or achievement not of anybody but yourself. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, your failures and your losses fall simultaneously into that same bracket. And so it can take you, um, can hit you rather quite hard because there is no one else to blame. Um, and the process of internalizing it is one that I would say is critically dependent on time. One mm-hmm. cannot really force that internalizing process other than to force oneself to immerse oneself mm. in thinking about it, to have to critically accept at some point in time that the loss is yours, that the failure is yours, and more positively, that the learning is also yours. Mm-hmm. Um so, I, yeah, I would say it's something that takes time, that help, that is helped by support, but not something that can happen externally at all. I really uh, uh, resonate yet again with uh, the fact that you are prepared, Adam, to accept loss. Even as a youngster, you were to say, yes, I've lost. I've actually lost, but I'm not a failure. There will be another chance. Um, and then, of course, the whole road of uh, learning new strategies and new steps. Now, for those listeners uh, abroad especially who might not know of Adam Earl and his remarkable chess achievements, I know it's perhaps a difficult question to ask because one is naturally modest and so on, but I'd like you to just give us some of the highlights of events you won as a, you know, I was reminded of a um a chess tournament, um, can't remember if it was a closed one or not, but at the age of eight or nine, you were already in the papers. Could you highlight some of the, uh, games in which, you know, you'll, that you'll always remember and really felt very good about? Absolutely, Prof. So I would say that, um, if you were to kind of tally and make a list of every tournament win, um, it's probably longer than I can remember yeah, and I sure, understand sure. how immodest that sounds. Sure. Um, but they're at various scales and various levels. Mm-hmm. So in terms of rather highlight achievements, I would say that I had the opportunity and a very privileged opportunity um, to represent South Africa. That is to play with our flag on my back for perhaps, I think it was five separate instances, both at the World Junior Championships and at the Olympiad. Mm-hmm. Um, so... While the stepping stones that get you there sometimes, you know, uh, fall away in the mind's eye, certainly the moments at which you, you were there didn't. Um, some of their achievements, um, was the, 
South African Youth Championship that mm-hmm, I won once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then I would, yeah, I would say the, the, the small stuff that I've forgotten also tallies up. You have snap of memories of, of, of great games and great moments here and there. Um, but it is difficult to think back um, and difficult to speak immodestly. Now, the point is, uh, let me rather um, strategize this and try and concretize this. I think that's extraordinary, Adam. Um, how, when you partook in the World Junior Championships, uh, how old were you the first time around? Um, I think 11, 11, 12 years old. Well, listeners, there you have it. Someone at 11 years old playing in the World Junior Championships. I think that's awesome. And in the Olympiad? Uh, possibly 14, a few years later. That's about three or so years later. Mm. So here we have, and I've been introducing him very gently onto this show today for special reason, not to just take out all our uh, flags right at uh, step one, but you are listening to someone who's partaken in the Olympiad in the World Junior uh, Chess Championships and so forth at the age, the tender age of 11. I think you can start appreciating uh, the lessons, the unique lessons which uh, Adam uh, is able to elucidate and to share with us today. But I'd like to uh, home in, Adam, just before we take a music break, uh, I'd like to home in on something which you touched on, and that also uh, is deeply meaningful for me today. And uh, that's the following. You said something terribly important, perhaps without realizing it, but you said to me that uh, your parents uh, gave you the space to be. Now, when I am in Paris, one of my... Uh, Frequent places that I always go and visit, that I frequent. One of the places that I frequent is, of course, the um, the Rodin Musée, Musée Rodin, uh, where we find the incredible artworks of um, Auguste Rodin. And as you know, if you walk into my office, there are um, transparencies and so forth of Rodin's uh, thinker. A man just sitting thinking. Now, I do a tremendous amount of talking, as you know, and lecturing at the university and outside and so forth. And uh, there are very few times, Adam, very few times, exceedingly few times, that uh, I walk into an office, for example, at university or, for example, a corporate office, and uh, there's somebody sitting at their desk simply just thinking. Do you feel that the rise of technology today is perhaps robbing us of a very fundamental strategy, and that is the one of silence, the moments that one spends, like Albert Einstein did, like you do in chess, just thinking? So I'd like to touch on the technology piece in a moment, Mm -hmm. but I will say that even Mm -hmm. more generally, I believe, sadly, that uh, thinking is something of a lost art. I think that's extraordinary. And isn't it sad? Thinking is something of a lost art. Hence my question. Absolutely. So I I feel that in the modern world, it's often thought that one should not think if not on a specific thing. We think only because we have a specific goal in mind. And to your point, you don't see people, and I think this is an important word, just thinking. Absolutely, you do not. I think technology plays a much bigger piece in this than a lot of people like to think. Mm-hmm. I think if people truly think um, back to their last week even and consider a moment in which they were lying on their bed with nothing to do, 
I think the first reaction 99% of the time is to grab one's phone, mm-hmm. to peruse the internet, to text a friend. Um, and these are not bad things. I'm certainly not against technology. Mm-hmm. What I am against is what it costs sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that is the ability to, to think openly, to think freely, mm-hmm. um, and truly to let the mind wander. So, some places have cottoned onto this. Google is notorious for wanting offices that promote lateral thinking and freedom of thought. Um, and I think it's, it's probably a greater concern that people don't buy into thought as a currency to think that mm. I need to find a person whose value is in what they think rather than what they do. Mm. I think that's just riveting. Thought is a currency. One is always told, isn't one, Duncan, who's our audio engineer this afternoon at Cliff Central? Uh, one is always told that, um, you know, w- what currency are you dealing in? Euros and dollars and thus forth and FIFA. And you immediately, um, you know, uh, place an isomorphism between currency and money and euros and FIFA and so on. But what you is saying really uh, is, extreme, is extremely interesting, and that is that, uh, you know, how about sponsoring people who simply think? I remember uh, one day a mother calling me and saying she would like her daughter to job shadow me. And uh, I said, yes, with pleasure. And she said, well, what will my daughter be doing? And I said, well, your daughter will be doing what I will be doing. So she said, well, that's awesome. What do you do? And I said, well, I'll give her a pencil and a piece of paper, and she'll look at it and spend the next three or four hours just thinking. And she said that she replied back and said that her daughter was not cut out for that, with that sort of uh, perhaps academic cloth. But now the point is I blame the culprit largely on technology. Do you? So as I mentioned earlier, I think technology is a big piece of it, but I think it goes even deeper than that. Um, I think there really is a growing international culture of um, preoccupation, I would say. The idea that you should fit 24 hours Mm. of doing into a day Mm. I think is wrong. To fill, a, to fill a day of 24 hours with uh, the miles run, as it were, mm. um, does not mean to necessarily do. It means to be. Mm-hmm. And to be is a big, uh, big chunk of what it means to be, Absolutely. is to think mm-hmm. um, and to, to experience, I would mm-hmm. say. I think it's far too easy to, um, and we see this in the academic spheres all the time, listen to a lecture, step out of the lecture, um, and be convinced that because you've written it on the page, you know it. Um, and not enough time is just spent internalizing and abstracting Absolutely. Um, and pondering. I Absolutely. think pondering is a good word because it gives it a softer touch. But one must ponder um, mm-hmm. if one is if mm-hmm. one is to be great. Mm-hmm. And even on a lesser level, one must ponder if one is to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is an important takeaway. Pondering, winning. We're going to now switch. You're listening to Professor David Block. On his uh, broadcast, Looking Up with David Block, uh, I'm in, I have the privilege of interviewing Adam Earl today and uh, a chess guru who at the age of 11 took part in the World Junior Championships and also in the uh, Chess Olympiad. Uh, the studio number here in Rovonia is 0861 The Twitter handle at cliffcentral.com. The WeChat Cliff Central on Facebook Cliff Central. Instagram at Cliff Central. And now to Sting.
Welcome back. This is Professor David Block and you're listening to Looking Up with David Block. To reach us in studio, 0861-555-189, Twitter at cliffcentral.com and the WeChat, which is the most frequently used way of reaching me, Cliff Central. My personal webpage is www.davidblock.com. 
www.davidblock.co.za. That's www.davidblock.co.za. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, which is what many listeners do, my handle is at Starry Galaxy Man. That's at Starry Galaxy Man. I am interviewing someone who became legendary at a very young age uh, in the world of chess, represented South Africa at the World Junior Championships at the age of 11, the Olympiad, and uh, who has got some brilliant ideas which he's been sharing with us, uh, such as winning feels good, and that just uh, still uh, resonates and stays and rises within my spirit today. Welcome back to the studio, Adam, and I'd like to take it further with our uh, Rodin image and, you know, the guy just sitting there and being in silence. I've asked this question to thousands of people across the world. I go up to people of 40, 50, 60 years old, 20 years old. I say to them, when last have you seen someone sitting like this just thinking? And the answer's never. So that means that we hardly ever think, which is, or think original thoughts, which to me is very, very tragic indeed. Now, therefore, I would say, uh, my observation would be that people are generally afraid of silence. Uh, Somehow they need this diversion and 24-7 connectivity. Now, what I'd like to know from someone your age and with your experience is that... um, why is the why? Why do you believe? What is it? Why is it that you, when you walk into a mall, you need music? When you walk in to buy a car, you need music. When you walk in to buy an ice cream, you need music. When you go and want to listen to the birds in a, at a, you know botanical garden, their cars blazing with, forth with music. What is it? There must be some central issue that wherever I go, you can't walk into a shop and they allow you to shop in total silence. I think the answer to that is one word. It's distraction. I think the very best times that a person can spend is in pursuit of goals and in pursuit Mm -hmm. of dreams. And when I think about the point that you're making, that we are so busy every day and noise is everywhere and distraction Mm. is everywhere, Mm. I like to find the alternative and Mm. think to myself, when do I see people most quiet? When Mm. do I see people most focused and least distracted? Um, And I find that in pursuit of one's goals is when I see it. To see an athlete um, running around the track or bowling, if the sport um, Mm -hmm. analogy works for you, or the mm-hmm. thinker, if Good. the mm-hmm. if the academic one does, um, thinking alone, thinking in quiet, thinking in peace, um, perhaps even the musician practicing. The last thing they would want in any of those situations is distraction. So perhaps it is too broad a stroke. Perhaps it's a little too general. Mm-hmm. But I would like to make the claim that it is for the absence of goals that people find distraction. I think people will often wake up on a Tuesday and wonder not, how, you know, what will fill my time rather than I have so much to do, how mm. will I fit it in? Mm. Um, mm. and the fact that we find 90% fall on that side of the fence, mm. um, is why we have the burst in social media, why we have, mm. um, people who will listen to nine and a half hours of music a day, um, rather than, uh, looking up. <laughs> what therefore would you say, uh, to someone who is distracted? 
Uh, if I, for example, met someone, and I do this all the time with my students and so forth, if one meets people who are distracted, uh, they're obviously just generally bored. And so what you're saying is there's distraction, there's boredom, and therefore there's no goals. Now put yourself again at the chessboard. Uh, there, of course, that's silence, total silence, and you're going to play, even as a nine-year-old, in total silence. Uh, what is the lack of noise due to Adam Earl personally? The lack of noise. The lack of noise. Is something I would call uh, the greatest blessing, I would say. That's um, awesome, listeners. Listen to that. The lack of noise is one of the greatest treasures on this earth. And I couldn't agree with you more, Adam. How does it affect me personally yes. was your question. Yes. I would say that um, when I'm in a lull, when I um, things may not be going so great, uh, it's possibly the worst feeling. It affects me quite negatively because it forces me to deal with what's getting me down. It mm. forces me to be introspective. Um, and in the best of times, it is still that introspection that is so valuable. Mm. Sitting at the chessboard, um, as you point out, at such a young age, um, in utter silence, in fact, um, for our listeners out there, the regulations are such that one should not talk to another person during the game mm-hmm. lest they get advice. Mm-hmm. Um, it forces you to be, to be very much in, in and of yourself. Um, it forces you to think and it forces you to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of as a rote rule, I've uh, said to students before, if you're struggling with your problems, um, Write it down on a page in front of mm. you. Um, turn your phone off, mm. and I guarantee you, you will get the answer. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. Turn off the phone, t- turn off the TV. Mm. Um, there is no magic to it. Mm. I believe people are far more capable mm. than they believe, mm. um, and people can just do more than they suspect, but it does require you um, to be fully engaged and, and not being engaged, being distracted. Um, they're, all, they're all tied together, mm. um, the absence of goals. I think this is just, uh, you're speaking along my lines exactly. When I was a student at Wits University and at the University of Cape Town and elsewhere, uh, when I knocked at somebody's door and they asked me to come in, they were invariably sitting at their desk doing something, thinking. That was, of course, long before the age of the cell phone and the iPad and iPhone and so forth. But the point was that... Uh, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have, when I was raised as a student, uh, laptops and that sort of thing. Uh, our computers were extremely primitive. We still used computer cards with which to um, punch characters in Fortran and so forth. And I remember very well. Some professors, such as uh, Professor Michael Sears, who was my guest recently, or um, Professor De- the late Professor Derek Henderson, who was the Vice Chancellor at Rhodes, who taught me computer science. I remember walking into their rooms, and they're always deep in thought. And what you are saying is that is a currency. Now, I'd like to feed that out, yet play that out, and tease that out yet a little more. But we have a uh, request, a question, and that is, Professor Block and uh, Adam, how could you encourage the people of the world to exercise critical thinking? So you give your response, and I'll give mine. 
I was hoping you would do that the other way around, Prof. <laughs> well, if you want that, if you want me to jump in first, no, no, no need, Prof. I think it's, I think it's first a fantastic question. Yes, it, I agree. Because it identifies um, a fantastic learning, and that is that there is an absence of critical thinking. There's a total absence. Um, and I think yes. one must first acknowledge that um, mm-hmm. personally, socially, and, and globally before one can really ask how to tease it out. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps the adage is old and overused, but I believe it starts as young as it can start. I think it really is the youth who need to be taught to think critically, to be opinionated, um, and to ask the hard questions. Mm-hmm. So aside from it being young, I also think there is a culture of um, perhaps it's it's disrespect or it's at least seen as disrespect, uh, disrespect to question one's elders. Mm-hmm. But it is not one's elders or one's peers. It is one's ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it's okay to ask. In mm-hmm. fact, one should ask. Mm-hmm. I am often amazed, and I experienced this in lectures, even yours, when people would say, and here is the end of the concept, are there any questions? Mm. And the fact that there is not one hand up rather than every hand up mm. says that people struggle to think critically. Mm-hmm. Um, they do, indeed. And the other thing is I think people are very de- um, very against asking questions, mm-hmm. lest they seem um, unknowledgeable mm-hmm. on a topic. Mm-hmm. But it is okay to ask, and it's mm-hmm. okay to not know. Mm-hmm. And the freedom um, to ask and the strength required to ask mm-hmm. is something that I think we should instill in everybody um, as young as possible. And even, it, I would also say it's never too late, mm. to colleagues and friends, um, to business owners looking to instill good mentalities in their staff. It's better to ask, always, mm. um, because once one asks, one might know. Absolutely. Now we have more knowledge. <laughs> so if you, uh, the listener wants my uh, comments as well, and I'm very honored to answer, is that, first of all, why is critical thinking so important to you and me? Well, let me ask you a very personal question today. How are you feeling today? Whether you're listening to me in Cape Town or KwaZulu-Natal or a little igloo in Alaska or wherever you are, how are you feeling today? Be honest with yourself as you're hearing my voice, maybe with music in the background, maybe not. But how are you feeling? Now, some of you might say, well, I'm feeling okay. Some might say, I'm feeling bad. Some might say, I'm feeling good. Some might say, I'm feeling passionate, and thus forth. But the interesting thing is, I would encourage you to take down, to take a pen and a piece of paper, and to write down all your thoughts that you current, that are currently going through your head this second. Write down the 20 uppermost thoughts that are going through your head this moment. Just write it down automatically. Just sit down and take a pen, a piece of paper or pencil, and just elucidate, say, 10 or 15 thoughts. Now, when I encounter people who do this, I come across a very extraordinary discovery, and that's this, that our feelings are determined and delineated by our critical thinking patterns or lack 
thereof. Let me give you an example. If, for example, I meet somebody and they say, well, I want to throw in the towel in this scenario, in this job situation. The first thing that I ask them is to write down their thoughts. And some of their thoughts might be like this. Well, here again, I failed. So I am a failure. I am no good. I am no good at competition. I am. I am no. I am no. I am no this. I am no that. But what's interesting is you'll find yourself not writing down one positive thought. You find yourself uh, elucidating one negative thought after another. Now, in the world of psychology and psychiatry, you know, people always used to treat the feelings. If you're feeling depressed, you know, the doctor will give you medicine to help those feelings. But what one realizes today, and I have had great friends such as the late Professor Lewis Hurst at Witz, a brilliant, 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 three brilliant psychiatrists, and he would uh, elucidate, and people like Louis Kruen, how your feelings don't determine your thoughts, but it's the other way around. Your thoughts to determine how you feel. So, if you're thinking negatively, you'll feel negative. If you feel that winning is good, you'll be thinking thoughts, as Adam mentioned earlier, of winning. So watch that critical space of your thought world very, very carefully. Why is it so critical? Because your thoughts determine how you feel today and not the other way round. Secondly, my answer would be this with regard to um, uh, a critical state analysis and critical thinking is that, Adam, when I think, I must never follow the herd. In other words, when I've, you know, ventured out and, you know, tried, for example, to have our work, teamwork appear on the cover of Nature, one of the world's greatest scientific um, uh, magazines, journals, journals, uh, it was very important for me and in my day-to-day walk, in my research walk, never to follow the herd instinct. Would you agree, Adam? Would you play that out f- further? The, um, the courage, as Mandela showed us, to be me and not to uh, listen to the voice of negativity and the voice of the herd who say, don't do it at all. Prof, I think there is a subtlety in that statement which is often missed. The adage is to not follow the herd. It is okay to be a part of the herd, but one should be leading it. Mm-hmm. It's about having that um, novelty of thought, I would say, up front. It is okay for for you to have uh, to be of the opinion of the masses, but one yes. must not end up of yes. the opinion of the masses yes. by default. Yes. Um, that is to yes. remove the ability to think critically and indeed yes. the need therefore. Yes. Um, so I think it does take courage. And I think that's it another important It does take a lot of courage, word. doesn't it? Adam? It does. I mean, you alone, you alone, you're in your room, you alone, mm-hmm. you get a telephone call, you can't do this. You get another telephone call or another BBM or SMS. No, 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 don't do it this way. Everyone else has tried and failed. Yet Thomas, and Ed, Thomas Edison said, I have tried 3,000 ways to invent the practical light bulb 
Have you failed 3,000 times? Edison said, no. Edison said, I know of 3,000 ways uh, which will not work. I know of 3,000 ways not to try uh, that those ways again. So there's a very important, uh, very important, critically important, crucially important aspect here is that Edison never listened to the folk around him, the herd instinct. Eddington was a man of his moment, and that's why he lit up the world, literally so, uh, with the electric light bulbs and so forth. It takes enormous courage, though, does it not, Adam? Indeed, it does take courage, and good news for all of our listeners today. It doesn't usually take 3,000 fails, just three. But people are so terrified of even the first um, that that's the hurdle that we don't quite get past too often. Um, I think we've both experienced it in our personal and professional Mm -hmm. lives Mm -hmm. that courage is required to to be great. Courage is required even to be good. Mm -hmm. Nothing comes – in the absence of courage, one can expect nothing but mediocrity. Um, And that's a a hard Mm -hmm. truth that I Mm -hmm. think is not Mm -hmm. often taught. Mm -hmm. I think there is a – a pervasive belief that if one is to follow the status quo, mm. things will be, and I use the word poignantly, mm. okay. Mm. Because okay is okay. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, I think, to really hamper the potential mm. of, of people. I think people are really, in their own unique ways, all destined for greatness. Mm. And I think the path to get there I would is agree a lot easier. With that. Mm. Yes, I would really agree with that. Now, we have a lovely, uh, Question again, uh, and uh, the, the listener wants uh, comments from both of us. So here it comes. Dear Professor and Adam, it has been said that a man's thoughts can be divided into two classes, 10% money and success driven, and the other 90% woman and mating. Your thoughts. I would say, uh, rather tongue in cheek, that the 90% is an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> would you rate it at 99? <laughs> I think, I, I think it would be great if we could, with that level of ease, um, kind of compartmentalize what it is to be human and what it is to think. Um, but I think, I think the, the, the point is taken and I think it is a good one that most people's thoughts are too often too easy. Mm. Um, I think it's too often um, the simple conclusion that is the one that is reached, and I don't believe that's an honest attempt to reach that conclusion. Mm-hmm. I think people are comfortable um, sitting in the middle ground, mm-hmm. um, kind of mm-hmm. having a half-hearted mm-hmm. opinion on most things. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's not to say the middle ground is the mm-hmm. wrong place, but mm-hmm. one must be fully in the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, or fully to the left mm. or fully to the right, mm. but one must be there because of one's own volition. Mm. Um, so perhaps not 90% and 10%. Mm. Um, what would it be in Adam Earl's life? I mean, here you are, you're a young guy, uh, girlfriend and so forth and, you know, not yet married. Um, how in your life with and with your incredible achievements, what sort of percentage would you believe is a healthy, uh, a healthy, sober, logical framework between one's, the romantic side of one's life and then the goal to win? 
I think perhaps there's some overlap there because I think it is okay and perfectly valid to think about winning in one's private life mm-hmm. and specifically within one's romantic winning life. Winning in your private life, yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the importance of of winning cannot be understated. Mm-hmm. That is to say that one cannot win in the absence of a goal, but when one has a well-defined goal, one can win and winning feels good. I think a healthy mix there is to acknowledge that there is man in the ideas and it's okay to have mm. goals that are mm. external, mm. but there is a man beneath that, a mm. man of blood and a man of emotion Wonderful. and a man of the mind. And Wonderful. the importance of setting and prioritizing mm. goals in that sphere mm. cannot be understated. So I would classify one's romantic life um, along with one's social interactions under the sphere of me being great because I understand that there is me in me mm. um, and the abstraction of achieving only in one's business, um, only in one's financial sphere is to miss half of the picture. And uh, if I can be so bold to miss the fun half of the picture. Mm. So what does it mean to this person who at the age of 11 was representing South Africa in the World Junior Chess Championships, which I just think is awesome. And you can hear his mindset is very unique. What does it mean to Adam Earl to be human? What does, just, you know, in a couple of minutes, what does that actually mean to be human? And notice the emphasis on the be. Is it to encourage others? Is it to listen to others? Is it to spend a lot of time alone? What does it mean to you to be human? That may be the hardest question I will ever be asked. Um, but one word comes to mind, and that is um, a very personal word, um, something I've come to, to experience lately, and that is um, to be fallible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's 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 very drilled into people at every level that one um, must succeed and succeed in isolation very often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's okay to be fallible. It's okay to be mm-hmm. vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think to be human means to accept one's failings. That means that one should listen to one's fellow human and mm-hmm. care, mm-hmm. but it's okay to admit that I'm not mm-hmm. a great listener. Mm-hmm. It's okay mm-hmm. to set goals, but to admit mm-hmm. that, that I'm not a great mm-hmm. goal setter. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to mm. acknowledge that mm. I have achieved, but mm. that I am not happy. Mm. But mm. the absence of that mm. self-actualization and that mm. vulnerability mm. and that, um, I would suppose, being sensitive to oneself mm. um, is what really makes one human. And I think that's true not only in the soft moments, but also in the hard moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They talk about winners being gracious in victory. Mm. I think there can be no mm. grace without that level mm. of self-actualization. And I would say that the happiest people at every front are those who believe. I think that is uh, just so such wonderful thoughts that you've shared there. And the listener wants to know my response as well. And uh, I'm honored. That's why I love joining you every Tuesday, uh, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m., looking up with David Block. What does it mean to, for David Block to be human? I suppose I would agree with, uh, and absolutely so with vulnerability and so forth. But, uh, to me, it means that I mustn't try and model myself after certain idols, quote unquote. For example, when I was at high school, Adam, I was never a prefect. 
And one of the reasons, or the reason was, that I had no passion whatsoever for kicking a ball. Uh, rugby was the name of the game in Krugersdorp. If you could play rugby, you were a star. You were a winner. You were destined for astronomical stratospheric heights. Whereas if you couldn't kick the war ball, you sucked, to use the terminology of my twins in Quinquesi. And Ketile. And so I had to sort of, you know, one has to talk to yourself at that stage. You're sitting in, you know, in the school hall. The names of the prefects are being announced. Well, maybe the second one will be David Block. Maybe the third one on the list will be David Block. Maybe the sixth one on the list will be David Block. You know, maybe the ninth one. And then you go down to number 10 and you realize they're only choosing, you know, 20, 10 boys and 10 girls. You're not a prefect. And I just remember that one can so internalize that and to me to be human is to say right David Block the person David Block is has not got any talent whatsoever or any passion whatsoever for kicking a ball so his talents lie in other areas and to for me to be human is to listen to others, to feel their depths, the depths of their emotions, of their hurts, of their crushed dreams, of their broken hearts, of their broken spirits. To be human is to identify yourself uh, with the boat in which the per- the sinking boat in which the person finds themselves sit in that sinking boat with them and to be human means to take their hand uh, much as Jesus did uh, to Peter uh, sinking in the water and lifted him up that to me is the epitome of um being human but today as we wrap up adam and i just have written down a couple of key thoughts that you've so graciously shared with our listeners today uh you've said some things which i would like to summarize and uh sort of take home thoughts as it were for our listeners before we play out with sting so you said and we've said this a couple of times but winning feels something Winning feels good. Let me say it again, listeners. Winning, winning in your personal space feels good. Uh, then uh, Adam Earl said this. He said, uh, currency is that which you use. You spend currency not on buying a house, but on your dreams, on living out your dreams. He said, currency and the spending of dreams, the spending of dreams, not of boats and houses and flash cars and so forth, but currency in terms of using that currency to spend time on enacting your uh, dreams. He spoke about what it means to be human. He spoke about why people are afraid of silence. He spoke about the cast of modern technology today. He spoke about the worlds of distraction. He spoke about the worlds of noise. He spoke about connectivity, the lack thereof. Purpose, Rodin, the thinker, the herd instinct, not following the herd instinct, courage, the courage to be great, 
pondering, 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 thinking in silence, and then winning, 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 and finally, and finally, the awesomeness of thoughts being too easy. We need to redirect our passions and our skills and our thoughts and our dreams and our ambitions and our futures towards uh, thoughts which are difficult in the sense that don't listen to the herd. Do not be like others are. Rise up as the young Martin Luther King Jr. did. Rise up as Nelson Mandela did. Rise up and be yourself. Rise up. Rise. Arise. And the future is yours. Adam, allow me to thank you so much and most warmly for joining us here in studio cliffcentral.com today. Thank you, listeners, and over to Sting.